0: One trend we've seen a lot in programming in recent years is the attempt to replace C. And I think that's both wise and terrifying. It's wise because C is about 50 years old. And being old doesn't make it bad, but it has given us five decades to think about what works and what doesn't work in programming language design. We've got 50 years worth of techniques we really ought to be putting into practice. And putting them into practice is the terrifying part, because C is everywhere. You may not write C, but I guarantee you're writing something that runs on something that runs C and was written in C. It's in the compilation stack for everything we install. So if languages like Go and Rust want to become the new C, they've really got their work cut out for them. All of which makes this week's topic kind of breathtaking. We're looking at Zig. It's a language that's not only trying to take on C and C++ and Rust and Go for that systems programming crown, it's also trying to replace the infrastructure that C itself gets built on, things like LLVM. So it can hopefully become the best way to build systems-level software across all different architectures. Zig ends up being a project with a huge scope and if you're a fan of programming languages there is a lot to chew on this week. We cover cross-platform compilation to memory management techniques to new thoughts in compile time metaprogramming as well as when you've got these huge long-term ambitions how do you structure an open source project for long-term funding? There is a lot of ground to cover, so this is a bit of a longer episode than usual, and we'd best get started. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Loris Crow. I'm joined today by Loris Crow. How are you doing
1: out there, Loris? Hello. Hi, Chris. Um, Pretty good. Thank you.
0: Good, good. It's good to have you here. I always love it when we do a language deep dive because I'm a particular fan of the world's programming languages. And you're going to tell us all about Zig, which is a language I don't think I'd heard of until we had uh, Joran Dirk-Grief on the show from Tiger Beetle, who said they've written a new database in Zig. And I thought, well, we have to do something about Zig. I have to learn about that. So... Let's start here. I always think new programming languages come into being as a reaction to what's missing in the in the marketplace, if you like. Like there's a burning reason why Zig needed to exist. Do you think that's true? What's Zig's raison d'etre? Uh
1: right. So I I guess a, a way of answering this question, like factually uh is maybe to look at how it was created originally. So the original creator the uh, creator, uh Andrew Kelly, uh wanted to make a, a digital audio workstation
0: uh, oh, software. Yeah. For music for making electronic music and that kind of exactly. thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah yeah. And uh he tried a bunch of different languages and he was unhappy with all the solutions with all the um trade-offs that each uh offered. So Uh, I think he started with higher level languages and then quickly found out that to do real time audio processing, uh, you can't use a language with like uh, automated memory management and uh, like languages that don't give you precise control over the hardware.
0: Yeah. Because audio is one of those places where we're talking hard real time. Exactly. Yeah.
1: You have to be there on time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, um, at the time, the like the main languages that did give you, uh, full control over the machine were like C and C. And, um, each had its own, like, if you will, baggage of issues, which uh, some of it is also up to, like, personal taste. Um, but for example, C is very low level, but it doesn't have good metaprogramming facilities. C macros are very well known for being not particularly good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're uh, not much better than hand, string mungin, right? Yeah, exactly. No. You you mess around with, with strings and you have a lot of like unwanted side effects. Yeah. Oftentimes. So it's uh it's a foot gun. That that's how we usually think of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the other hand, you have C++, which I don't know if he actually did attempt to use, but in general, C++ exists in a space, uh, where the language is very powerful. It's very complex and, um, it's a type of language where you are heavy with abstractions oftentimes and, uh, that kinda detracts from what you're trying to accomplish or or rather Some people can definitely make it work for them and that is their preferred way of programming. So that's good. But for some other people, uh, C++ doesn't really, um, you know, it it, it doesn't uh, feel good in your hand as a tool for some people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I can see how people... We're not going to start a language war, but you can certainly see how people would feel that way about C++. We Absolutely. Can say that. And,
1: yeah. and to me, you know, this is not really a thing of language war at all. Like, I can fully appreciate how somebody who likes that way of doing things can make it work for them. Uh, and But on the other hand, like for me personally, that, doesn't, that way of doing things doesn't really click. So ultimately, I can totally see how somebody would be productive with C++. And I wouldn't, so I need a different tool. Right. And I think that Andrew also shares, uh, generally speaking, this perspective. So, uh, he wanted to make a language that was, uh, low level. So that gave you full control over the machine that would be suitable for an, an audio workstation. And that on the other hand, it wouldn't be overly complicated. And there's like a a sentence that you can you can find in uh, like Zigs uh, on, on the website where we say, uh, it's one of the first things that you can see on the front page. It says, uh, focus on debugging your application rather than debugging your programming language knowledge. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: So that's kind of,
0: I, I know people, anytime you write something that's sort of competing with C in the low-level world, someone says, well, why not Go and why not Rust? But you, yeah. you begin to demarcate those as... But I'll let you answer it. Why is it not Go or Rust? Uh,
1: so uh, the reason why it's not Rust, I would say is uh, like the answer is very, in a very general way, it's kind of the same answer as why not C++. I think that Rust is another language that likes its own complexity. And it gains a ton of power from that for sure but uh but the complexity is there uh, and um and also um when it comes to like giving you full control over the machine rust it's not entirely of that opinion like rust uh for good reasons for 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 safety reasons rust wants to um relegate certain things inside unsafe Rust, which is a part of Rust that you are not supposed to use lightly. So that means that you will find out there, libraries, uh, that uh, when choosing between maximum performance and safety, they will choose safety probably over performance, oftentimes, because you do get audited if you have unsafe or not. So in in general, Rust is going for something slightly different than what Zig is going for. Okay. Uh, so both in terms of like trade-offs between performance and safety, but also in terms of uh, abstraction. And I would argue also like readability in terms of like the, the complexity because it, writing abstracted code makes it harder to understand and to read for for a consumer. Uh, when it comes to, to Go, um, I think that Go and Zig both share... An appreciation for simplicity, although Go is not just simple, it's also very minimalistic. Um, So I I would say that there are like some parallels between Zig and Go, but we don't have the exact same take on everything. And I can get more into detail if you want later. Um, but, um, But ultimately, Go is not as low level as Rust and Zig are. Um, I would, I am not sure if Go would be the best choice for an Audi workstation, for example, or for an operative system, because Go has a runtime, has a garbage collector. Also interoperability with C is a bit complicated in Go because, well, first of all, everything, any language that has a runtime that makes interoperability with C a little bit more complicated because you need to, uh, give information to the runtime of your language to the garbage collector about what's going on with memory. And so that sometimes makes things a little bit awkward, but with right. Go specifically, yeah. um, I do think that the for the Go team, interoperability with C was never a priority or something that they really liked. So Go can call C functions, for example. Uh, but you cannot do the inverse easily. So you cannot make a, a Go function that can be easily called from C. And I think basically this is like a uh, a philosophy of, of the Go team. Like they basically said, no, we want to do something different. We don't want to do something. We, we don't want people to rely too much on, like we want to be able to consume C libraries, but we don't want to do uh, the inverse. If you're in GoLand, you just go. I think that's kind of their their philosophy there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like we want to be able to reuse existing C, but we're not intending to live in the same ecosystem quite.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. that. And yeah. you can see that also in a bunch of choices that they made also with how compilation works in Go, um, like in terms of the compiler. And I think it's a reasonable choice. It, it, it's a choice. It makes sense. Uh, very different from from what Zig is going for.
0: Yeah, there's there's a. There, I don't think we need language wars because there's a huge design space to be explored, and there's plenty of there's plenty of land for everyone, right? Yeah. But okay, so that demarks what you want to be. What's what's Zig's answer to this set of design constraints?
1: Um, I think that I think the most interesting part about Zig's answer to like let's say systems programming, like lower level programming in general. Is to rebuild it from scratch. Uh all these other languages that I well, not all these other languages, but like it is common uh to consider kind of like C the bottom layer of abstraction mm-hmm. of what you're building. So for example, there are programming languages that compile to C code. Yeah. Uh I think NIM is an example of this. And uh Rust itself, it, it Rust doesn't compile to C. But for example, Rust depends on the C standard library of the platform that you're targeting. So if you're writing a Linux program, like a Rust program that you want to deploy on Linux, Rust will use the libc of your Linux distribution. Um, With Zig, the idea instead is to really, really build everything from the bottom up. And this is a big scope. This is not like uh, for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, but it does yield some very good um, uh, results, like it's some, some very good things that you can do once you are willing to do that work. So <clears throat> I would say that the most important, interesting thing about Zig is that it, it really is a language that allows you to build for every target from any target meaning that um if you want to target like not just normal computers but also very tiny embedded devices you can do so easily and that's also cross compilation because you're tar- like you're compiling on a linux machine probably which is going to be maybe x8664 and you're targeting a very tiny arm v8 embedded device so you're you're compiling oh, okay. for different architecture there but this is also true from computer to computer. So with Zig, it's, a very, it's considered fundamental, the ability to build your program for macOS, Windows, Linux, from any of those other OSs. So from Linux to Windows, from Windows to Mac, etc. That's surprisingly rare, Yeah, but a very nice feature. And it doesn't end here, because we can do this for Zig applications. And to be fair, I think that Go can do it for Go. Rust can do it for Rust but they cannot do it for C while we can do it also for C and C++. So the idea is that if if you have a project that has ZIG code in it and also a C dependency, not only you can cross-compile the ZIG part, but you can also cross-compile the C part. Really? Yes. And that is, I think, the huge thing. And it's so big that actually you can use ZIG as your C, C++ compiler When you are trying to cross-compile a Rust, a mixed project between Rust and C or a Go (laughs) and C one. So, for example, Go people have been using the Zig compiler to enable, to to complete, to close the circle, to to enable complete cross-compilation of uh, C Go programs. Uh, C Go is basically what, what you call a project that has both Go and C in it. C go is like a component of of their of the Go compiler. That's right. how they compile and link uh to to C code. So uh so, so Go p- people having using Go projects, they are using Zig to cross-compile. And same with Rust. Even uh AWS is using um, Zig to cross-compile Rust lambdas for their lambda engines because Rust depends on the libc of the target And their their machines running Lambda functions are running a specific version of of Linux with an older libc. And you need to be able to target the correct version of the libc to make sure that everything uh, runs smoothly. Right. And that's not something that normally compilers can do. Uh, And Rust itself, which uh, doesn't concern itself with C compilation at all, certainly cannot do. So they have, there's a package called cargo-zig-build that allows you to use Zig to basically link against the correct libc version that works on Lambda. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How on earth is that working? Are you telling me that Zig ha- also has a C compiler built in? or? Yeah, it does. Huh. It, it straight up does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Andrew started out trying to build an audio workstation and ended up building a language that also includes a C compiler. Yeah, pretty much. That's, that's it, legendary.
1: Yeah. And man, and this is like, uh, and I would say we're like halfway through the journey because uh, we want to get even more hardcore than this. So, it, it, I mean, if you want, we can change subject. Otherwise, I, I can No, keep I'm doing. fascinated. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, do you remember when uh, Apple released the uh, M1 architecture, right? Yeah, so, yeah. they went from Intel to ARM. Uh, and that was big news because, well, Turned out it's also pretty good uh, CPU, like pretty good architecture. New Macs, I, I would say, are pretty nice from... Uh, like, a, they're powerful. They overheat less. It, it's, they're nice. So, mm. uh, when Apple released the M1, uh, Zig was the first compiler that was able to cross-compile for M1 from another target, from another machine. So... Apple, obviously, when they released, well, 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 not only when they released, but also while they were developing the M1, obviously they had tooling to compile for the M1. Mm. But they never released, uh, or rather, when when everything came out, they had not released any tooling for compiling for M1 from another machine.
0: Oh, so you had to buy the new Mac in order to build for the new Mac.
1: Exactly, because what you would get was uh, when you have macOS you get uh clang you like you get a fork of llvm um which is uh yeah it's i, I would say it's kind of pretty much llvm except with like private patches that apple makes specific to their system mm. and when and uh, the M1 came out they had patches specific to the new architecture so you could compile uh obviously from M1 to M1 but llvm itself the open source project did not support M1 yet, fully. And so you could not get uh, LLVM like on Windows or Linux and then use that to compile for Mac OS. We were the first ones. And that was because um, not only Zig is a C compiler, and to be fair, the C compiler stuff right now, is, I would say at its core, it's not super impressive. The, the idea is that Zig uses LLVM. And LLVM is like this library that allows you to uh, it's like a unified framework uh, for optimizing, for generating optimized machine code. So the idea is that you, uh, your compiler reads the program that it's trying to compile, builds a data structure in memory, does semantic analysis, all the usual stuff that our language has to do. But then the final step is to give some of that information to LLVM, which will then take care of selecting which exact instructions. Uh, to use for the for the CPU that you're targeting. Right. So it's, I suppose, I want to say it's almost a little bit like
0: WebAssembly. It's like a very low-level language that's actually going to generate the final machine code.
1: Yeah. It's possibly that's, a bit of a
0: stretch, but... That's,
1: I, I think that's fair. That's uh, what, uh, that's the, that's called the uh, LLVM IR, intermediate representation. Yeah. That's what you create, which is a bit code, of some kind and uh, bytecode, sorry, of some kind, kind, kind of like a uh, web assembly. I, I think that's a fair parallel. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So you, we give that to LVM, and uh, since we're already bundling all of LVM, it doesn't take much to also add Clang, which is the C compiler that runs on LVM. So that what's allow us to to build C. There's more than Zig does, but at its core, it's not super complicated. Uh, but, okay. but. Um, A compiler is just one step necessary to create a final executable. There's also a linking phase at the end. So um, the main problem with uh, the new M1 Max was that linking uh, needed to be different than it was in the past. And the reason why we were the first ones to be able to uh, cross-compile for M1 uh, was because we had our own in-house linker. Uh, there's a core team member in the Zig Project. Uh, his name is Jacob Konka, and he used to work at Microsoft, and we kind of poached him um, mm-hmm. to work. Well, he, I guess he poached himself. He wanted to work on, <laughs> on, on linkers. Uh, I think at Microsoft, he was not working on anything even remotely as exciting. And so he decided to jump ship and join the Zig Project full time. So he we have our own linker, and most of the work is done by him. Um and so that my point here is that by having our own linker we were able to reach to to have a feature even faster than LLVM code and LLVM is considered in general like a very good project and, and it is hmm. and it is yeah um but by not the point is that we did not consider VM the baseline we were willing to get past VM and do some of that work ourselves and now going forward, and this ties back to my point that we are only halfway through our journey. Now going forward, we plan to make LVM a completely optional component. So that means hmm. that we have our own implementation of some of what LVM does. So we have what we call them backends. So we have our own implementation of what reads the internal representation of the compiler. Uh, the internal data structures, and decides which instructions to output. Uh, That's a lot of work because you have to build one of those things for each architecture that you want to support. So you want to support x86-64? That's one implementation. ARM 32-bit? Another. ARM 64-bit. x86, like 32-bit x86? That's another one. Um, There's more architectures out there. So for each one, you have to write a specific one. And then you have to write... uh, Another bit uh, based on the OS that you're targeting. So like x86-64 Windows is a little bit different than x86-64 Mac. Not in terms of like the instructions of the program, but like the packaging, like uh, how an executable is structured, all the like surrounding metadata, the framing in, in a sense. Right. Yeah. And we're doing it now. Uh, The work that we're doing in that regard right now is not to replace LLVM in terms of optimizations. So the the bulk of what LLVM does and what it's considered state-of-the-art for is optimizations. We are not doing that yet. What we're doing right now is uh, basically do the work so that we can have debug builds, which are not optimized, uh, happen without needing LLVM at all. Ah. That's our starting point. But right. the plan is going forward to basically have a competing, optimizing backend. So you will still be able to use LVM if you want. Um, the, the, how it's going to happen in practice, doesn't matter much. I think it's going to happen that you basically will need to get LVM through the package manager. So you you will use the Zig package manager to get LVM instead of getting it bundled in the compiler itself. But then you will be able to get an LVM optimized final executable, regardless. But we are going to work on our competing version, and it, you will decide which one you like more. And <laughs> over time, if we do a good job, it might even be that our competing backend becomes compelling enough that people will use that one over LVM.
0: Crikey, you're not kidding about going all the way down yeah. to the lowest yeah, level, right? Yeah. Jeez. No. Yeah. But, okay. That that's. <laughs>
1: What's your timeline for that? <laughs> Oof. <laughs> That's got to be a multi-year project, right? 100%. Mm. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, honestly, I don't know what the timeline is going to be. The reality is that the, the timeline of these things can vary dramatically depending on the amount of talent that you attract. Uh, one thing that the people usually uh, say when, when we first tell them, yeah, we want to get rid of OVM, uh, they start by saying, "Oh, you're insane. You're never going to be able to do it. Th- there's a bunch of geniuses that work on LVM. Um, fair fine. Let, let, let's assume that that's right. I mean I'm, I'm sure that the people working on LVM are smart, um, oh, yeah. but it's not like they are bound by a blood contract to work on LVM. and if we and working on LVM, it's a humongous C++ project takes forever to compile. And it's, in some ways, like, it's messy. What if we were to be able to present to people working in that field uh, another ecosystem where they can research the same exact kind of of optimizations that they are researching and implementing on LVM, but the compiler, instead of taking four hours to build, it takes 20 seconds.
0: (laughs) I imagine that would be very seductive. For, and I think you're deliberately trying to seduce people over yeah. to the Zig side, which is fair
1: enough. And I mean, we already have people in the core team who have pushed access to LVM. So it's not like we are like, uh, well, I, I don't know anybody who is part of like the, the leadership of LVM. So I wouldn't say we are like insiders, um, but we we already know people who do this. So hmm. there's a yeah. sounds like
0: there's a potential for both knowledge sharing and maybe some more kinds of sharing uh, out there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And absolutely. And if LVM also ends up benefiting from this, it's yeah. great for everybody.
0: Sounds like one of those whoever wins, we all win situations. Absolutely. Okay. This is getting very low level. Maybe we should try and pull it back into <laughs> yeah, uh, we user space. <laughs> Love the ambition, though. Absolutely. But I I do want to get a sense um, of what it's like to write ZIG. What am I going to find as a programmer? What am I going to like? What am I going to need to learn?
1: Right. So um, the, the hardest part about ZIG is not ZIG at all. ZIG as a language is very, very simple. The most complicated part of ZIG right now is comp time, which is the ability to run code at compile time instead of runtime. And if you're not used to thinking about uh, the two different like uh, lifetimes of your program, the two different phases of its life, then you might get a little bit confused about what it is that you can, can do at comp time or what it is that you cannot do at comp time. But overall, the core principle is, in my opinion, kind of straightforward. Where things get complicated. It is once you get into systems programming more in general. So if you are like a JavaScript or a Python developer, and you never had in your life to think about stack versus heap, or maybe people told you, but like if you're a Python programmer, this is something that also happened to me like in university. Um, If you do Python and people tell you about stack versus heap, that's like philosophy to you because that's, (laughs) right, you don't have control. Fascinating, but you'll never use this knowledge. Exactly, like you don't have control over it and and, and, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But When you're getting to low level systems programs, suddenly this becomes a real concern, right?
1: Exactly. And so people, so the hardest part is, for example, understanding the difference between um, an array of which, of whose length you know, you know, statically, like this is going to be a six element array and it's always going to be six, or maybe, yeah. uh, you know, you need up to six slots. Maybe at some point in time you, you use fewer than those. So you have a, like a counter that tells you how many slots you're using, but six is the limit. So, and if you know this statically at compile time, then this can be put on the stack. And there's certain things that you can do with this memory, thanks to the knowledge Of the fact that it's bounded to six elements, and yeah, you know exactly
0: how much memory it's going to need for the whole lifetime of the program.
1: Exactly, and that is critical information for the compiler itself. Like the language, uh, lower-level languages are like designed around these very critical concepts of like what you know statically and what you do not know statically. So, if, for example, instead you have a program where you ask the user to tell you how many items they want to enter, and they are allowed to enter ten thousand if they want. Or um, more realistically, imagine parsing a JSON file. Like a JSON file can be arbitrarily deeply nested or yeah. big in general. So, in that at that point, uh, you need to concern yourself with heap allocation, uh, which again is something that in Python, and JavaScript, you don't do directly because the runtime m- manages that for you. Yeah. Uh, So that's one example. Another example is things that your platform, like APIs that your OS uh, operative system gives to you, which people sometimes are used to think about as in terms of capabilities that the language gives to them, even though the language can only act as an intermediary. So for example, sometimes people uh, ask, um, how do I get the size of the terminal window in ZIG? And the answer is well, the question, I- the real question is, how does your OS allow you to get that information? Right, and then, and that's going to happen through a syscall of some kind, and then the the I guess the secondary question is where well has somebody written the boilerplate to access that syscall, and where is it in the Z standard library? So. The question of how you do like uh, this kind of stuff in, in Zig or in, in each specific language—it's not completely wrong. It does make sense, but um, understanding what is the actual API below you can be a little bit annoying, especially when the language uh, wants to show you precisely what what that is, and it's not trying to give you a sugared interface that it's overly simplified. Um, because sometimes you do also get that in other languages, which might make sense. Like a higher-level programming language, it makes sense that it doesn't give you necessarily low-level access to like to everything. Um, yeah. th- so I would say these are like the biggest challenges. People need to learn systems programming. They need to have this mindset where they have to think, okay, how? Like when, uh, for another example, people sometimes ask, "How do I print colored text in the terminal? How do you do that in Zig?" And the answer is Zig doesn't concern itself with this. Like these are escape codes. It depends on which terminal emulator you're using and a bunch of other related concerns that really are pretty much transparent to ZIG. Uh, But people don't have this mindset. So I would say that is the hardest part about learning ZIG. And connected to this, there aren't a lot of good learning materials in my opinion.
0: Uh, So this sounds like um, the usual kind of youngish language problem. Where maybe there isn't a library for everything yet, and so there aren't doc- there isn't documentation for everything yet.
1: Yeah, for sure. But also, I mean, it's not like Zig has invented systems programming. So <laughs> it would be nice, right, if there was some good piece of like a good book that taught you the core principles uh, without too much fuss. And and th- in fact, there are plenty of books that try to teach you these things. It's just that in my experience most of those that i've seen they tend to conflate c specific stuff with the os so for example you have this book that it's trying to teach you systems programming and it starts by telling you about how the c compilation model works and how that intertwines with like how libraries are uh, f- certain files are like laid out in your system. And this is all real and concrete. And it was especially real and concrete and concrete like 40 years ago. But those concepts, uh, like in other things like macros and where things are usually in the system library, but th- those those are things that are specific to C. So if you're not doing C, a lot of these things are not as timeless as the book thinks they are. While instead, yeah, stack versus heap, that one is much more timeless. So personally, I think that we're missing learning materials that can discern between really timeless systems programming concepts, like stack versus heap, uh, versus C-isms that are not that relevant anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a sort of uh, long life cycle, but not not mathematically pure. You could almost say, yeah, yeah. Okay, but so I would like to talk about how the uh, C interop works. And maybe this is the way to do it. So if I'm I'm actually looking to get the size of a terminal window, am I going to go looking for a sysop call and find I actually have to do it through an OSC library? And how's that going to play out when I actually start coding? So,
1: uh, well... I guess it depends on the OS. Let's assume that the OS is Linux, okay? For simplicity. Yeah. So if the OS is Linux, uh, you're in luck. Because in Linux, uh, the syscalls are considered a public API of the OS. So you are not forced to use the C library of your OS. You can invoke the syscalls directly. And in the case of Z, since we like doing things from scratch... Uh, <laughs> you will find in the ZIG standard library that we do implement the syscall, uh, which I think it's IOCTL, um, okay. the syscall that you can use to get that information from the OS. So in the case of ZIG, uh, so in, yeah, in the case of uh, of Linux, that's how you find that out. Um, but in other platforms, yes, you would have to use a CLib, although we do have also bindings to the CLib. So in practice, You wouldn't have to do everything yourself from from scratch Um, when it comes to, like, these very common things. But let's imagine that instead you want to use, like, a C library. Okay. Let's imagine that you want to use, I don't know, SQLite. Uh, uh, By the way, SQLite is a perfect example of a very popular library used, for example, by Go. There's a lot of Go projects that that bundle uh, SQLite, but SQLite is a C project, so... Uh, that, that's one major use case of people using Zig to do cross compilation when they also want to bundle SQLite. Anyway, uh, you want to use SQLite. So, uh, at its baseline, here's what you want to do. Uh, you want to, the the way this stuff works in C is that you have C files that contain implementations of things and have header files, which are like files uh, with a .h extension, and those files contain definitions. So they contain, they do not contain the full implementation. They only contain like the signature of a, of a, of a function, for example. Yeah, the or... original
0: kind of API docs, right? Exactly.
1: The original yeah. API docs. Like they're, they're um, what's it called? Is it called Open API? I think? Uh, the thing that used to be called Swagger. It's basically like, oh, it's, it's a system yeah, to yeah. document like RESTful APIs, right? That, that's yeah. kind of the idea, except systems programming. <laughs> um, yeah, so... The way this works is that then uh, SQLite comes with a bunch of C files and one header file that you are supposed to include in your project to to get access to the to the public API. With Zig, you can do that directly. So in Zig, you can import a C header file and it will work right away. Like you import that and you immediately get access to all the definitions in there. Oh, interesting. Okay, so there's
0: no kind of bridging file that you have to write.
1: Well, the bridging file, in a sense, gets auto-generated. That's the idea. Right, okay. So you, you don't see this, and actually, if you do want, you can do that manually. Like, you can take the header file, translate it to C definitions, and in case there's, like, the need to tweak something manually, you can do that if you want uh, but the happy path, like the, the most common way you will want to do this, is just straight up import the header file and have Zig do that bridging internally. Okay. Um, then at that point you can just straight up call all the SQLite functions that are defined in there. So you can you can just like go read the SQLite documentation. And they will tell you call, uh, I'm making this up. I don't remember how to use SQLite, but there's going to be maybe SQLite (laughs) init. This isn't a test
0: of the SQLite header API syntax, (laughs) don't worry.
1: (laughs) Okay. So there's going to be maybe some kind of SQLite init function. So you just call it and it works. Um, There's also a couple other things that Zig does that help you with interoperability with C. So for example, C uses null terminated strings a lot. Mm. Uh so basically there's a you when you want to give to a function a string you give it a pointer to the beginning of the string and the pointer doesn't carry information about the length the length will be discovered by the function that you're calling by iterating through the string to the string until it encounters a zero character once it like a zero byte once yep. it finds a zero byte it knows that the string is over uh modern languages don't like to do that anymore modern languages <laughs> I <laughs> very much prefer something else.
0: I'll tell you my age. I can remember when we didn't like to do it at the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in Zig, for example, normally a string, it's not just a pointer to the beginning of some data with a null in the end. But in Zig, it, we use slices, which other languages uh, sometimes call fat pointers. So the the tiny, the what you call the pointer is a pointer, but also a length. So yeah. you all, you have both informations. And to be fair, sometimes in C, you also have APIs that want a length. Not, they don't want to discover a null byte at some point, but they want you to pass in a length. But those have, have always to be two separate arguments, two separate values that you need to uh, move around in parallel. Anyway, um, so how does Zig uh, help with C interoperability? Well, uh, string literals in Zig are null terminated. So in, in basically, when you write, I don't know, hello world, and you want to use that string literal in zig, that's going to be a pointer plus a length. I don't know how long hello world is. Ten characters, nine characters, uh, whatever. Uh,
0: depends whether you include the traditional exclamation mark at the end.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so right. So you do have this information, but there's also going to be a null byte past the end of the string. So you can take a C Uh, a zig string literal and pass it to c transparently no need to do anything else and it's always Mm going to work and more in general zig does have a bunch of functions in the standard library that allow you to um, deal with null terminated strings which are not the preferred type of string in zig like you don't treat strings as null terminated normally but uh and Alternative strings are a reality because not only because of C interoperability, like in terms of SQLite, but also because of C interoperability with the OS. Like OS APIs, the libc, that's C, but also the syscalls oftentimes inherit some some like some ways of, of communicating data that are like mirroring what C does.
0: Yeah, unsurprisingly.
1: Right. Unsurprisingly.
0: Often, often yeah. the OS is written in C. So.
1: Exactly, because the OS is written in C, because that's yeah. that's maybe how people used to do things at the time. And so these things are still there. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay, so to conclude, yeah, uh, you have string literals. You have a lot of other, like, operators in C that you can also use with C functions um, very easily, uh, kind of transparently. Um, but uh, just to, to name one that I think it's really cool, you can use defer. So defer is almost the same concept as goes defer. There's like some minor differences. um, But the idea is that basically if you want to free a resource while when exiting the function, instead of making sure that you call free or like file close, for example, like the whatever resource release function you need to call, instead of making sure that you copy-paste that call at every exit point of your function, what you can do is on one line, you open a file. And on the line below, you defer close it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you have basically cleanup that you can put immediately after the creation of the resource. And whenever you leave that scope, no matter how you leave it whenever you leave that scope that function will be called
0: yeah cuz it's always deeply dissatisfying that you have to you have to remember to stick the close call or the free up call at the yep. end and you just it just screams this is going to get forgotten one day, forgotten one day right
1: yeah absolutely yeah. so the fair saves you from having to be too careful about like branching paths in your function and if you look at it from a, and it, maybe it's not as handy as, you know, what C++ can do with uh, Rai, with, with destructors. They run automatically. You don't even have to write defer. Mm-hmm. But C++ destructors only work with C++. Defer in ZIG also can be called on C functions. It's completely transparent. So there's this funny end result We we where basically... Zig, in a sense, is better at using C libraries than C. <laughs> because the same cleanup routine in C would require you maybe to even use goto. Like, it, it's not uncommon for people to use uh, goto and have like a, a label, like a section of the function with all the cleanup functions. But it it, it gets really messy. Like, uh, I don't think I am able to fully convey how messy cleanup can get in C uh, because it doesn't have the fur. I can believe, yeah, absolutely.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. Still being in C, but building on it with new syntax. I have to ask before yeah. we leave this particular thread: <clears throat> What about pointers? The do pointer does pointer arithmetic come into Zig? Uh,
1: pointer arithmetic can come into Zig. By the way, that's a great point. I was forgetting. That's another great um, improvement over C that also helps beautifully with interoperability. So you can do. Pointer arithmetic in, in ZIG if you want to, uh, because, because that's what the machine allows you to do. And maybe occasionally some OS API will require you to do so. Mm. But in general, you do not do pointer arithmetic in ZIG. And specifically in ZIG, you cannot do... So in the type system, you are not allowed to do arithmetic on pointers. What you have to do is take your pointer, convert it to an integer which is not like an operation that does anything at runtime. It's just like a a type system thing. Like you have to be explicit about taking a pointer, interpreting it as a number, apply the math to the number, and then convert it back to a pointer. So you can do it if you want, or if you need, probably if you need, you shouldn't want (laughs) But the language is not going to make it easy uh, or like very comfortable to you. There's a little bit of friction introduced there. And on the the flip side, it helps identify very quickly where these kind of shenanigans are happening.
0: Right. So it's it's mainly there for the sake of C interrupt rather than writing Zig day to day.
1: Exactly. And I mean, we say C interrupt, but I don't know. There might be other things out there. Like I'm thinking of firmwares, like you're programming a tiny embedded device and you need something like this because of the very low level stuff that you're doing, which is not really necessarily specific to to C anymore. But it's like low, super low level bit fiddling. Maybe at that point you need something like this. Um, But otherwise you normally don't. And still related to pointers, there's uh, another crucial thing. Pointers in C are very underspecified in the sense that you see a char star, so you know it's a pointer and it, when you dereference it, you get a character. But then the question is, can the pointer be null or not? You don't know. Maybe documentation tells you, but you're not sure uh, normally. The second question is, okay, am I, I'm getting a character at the end of this pointer, assuming it's not null. Now. Is there going to be just one character on the other side, or is this like a string? Is this like expected to have another character afterwards and another one afterwards until I encounter a null? Is there going to be a null, or am I supposed to know how many items to get because of another variable? This is not encoded in a type system at all. In Mm. ZIG, all of these are different type of pointers. So if a pointer can be null, it's an optional pointer. So we do the thing that all modern languages are doing, where you have like the concept of optional, and then you need to unwrap the optional. Um, and we use that to represent null pointers. But then we have types for... So you have normal zig slices, which are a pointer and a length. But then you have a C-style pointer that can be... that's going to be a pointer either to one item, one specific item. So you're explicitly saying there's going to be one character, one char yeah. at the end, not many. Or uh, there's syntax for saying, no, this is like a pointer to a unknown number of characters. So there's specific syntax and it's going to tell you. Yes, this is a pointer to many items, but the pointer itself doesn't tell you how many. And then there's a pointer to an unknown number of characters with a null terminator at the end. And this is in the type system. So for example, if you by mistake think that that you know you're trying to uh create a string off of another string and so like you maybe maybe take a tiny slice from the middle of the string and you try to pass it to another application and you forget that 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 um, that API is expecting an alternator at the end, which is not going to be there because you, you just split off like a tiny, like two characters from the middle of a string, right? So mm-hmm. there's not going to be an alternator on the other side. The Zig type system will tell you, it will give you a compile error because it will tell you, I'm expecting an alternated string, but the... the the operation that you like the slicing operation that you did on the other string does not yield an art terminated string so you will get a compile error right away instead of having your program read random garbage and maybe sometimes crash
0: yeah yeah that's that's one other question i have to ask you then cuz i can see right now this appealing to people that need to use c don't want to use c got into rust didn't make friends with the borrow checker yeah, uh, and now have could find Zig being the ideal place if I want more type type safety around C, particularly around strings. Yeah, what about memory management? Because that's the other big sticking point,
1: right? Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, in general, so if we want to talk about if we want to talk about ergonomics, what I just what I described earlier, like the the first statement, that really helps a lot with memory management. Mm. Uh, because you allocate a resource, defer, free it, and you're good to go. You need well, to there is an to explicit
0: free... like alloc, uh, malloc free call in Zigland.
1: Exactly, yeah. and uh, to to be even more concrete about this, um, Zig does not have a global allocator. So in C, you have malloc, and malloc is like the allocator. And maybe different projects use a different implementation of malloc. There's like a few competing implementations. But in, in, in ZIG libraries, there's this uh, idea that uh, in C libraries, there's this idea that you have malloc coming from the ecosystem that allows you to allocate memory. In ZIG, allocators are always passed around explicitly. So if a function wants to allocate, it needs to accept an allocator as input. Interesting. Yeah, so okay. this makes it more easy, dramatically more easy to audit what it is that's allocating memory or not. If a function doesn't accept an allocator or a data structure that bundles the allocator in it, like it's also like, for example, we have a array list, uh, which would be like the equivalent of a C++ vector. So like it's a growable array. But right. uh, when you make an array list, you give to it an allocator, and then when you, give, and when you pass around the ArrayList, the ArrayList will be able to allocate because it bundles a reference to the allocator inside of it. Um, that's for convenience. But in general, you can very quickly audit if a function can allocate or not. Does that inspect-
0: help you audit if a function is forgetting to deallocate?
1: That by itself, no. What it helps is that the, uh, doing that is that the, what we call the general purpose allocator, the main allocator implementation that you find inside of Zig in the standard library, that allocator in debug mode has leak detection. So you cannot check statically if all allocator allocations are freed, or rather, you can't unless you're willing to become Rust. Rust can. Uh, with all the limits, they also have limits on, on the type of like memory management strategies that, that the borrow checker can understand. But th- they can, we can't. But we can instrument the default allocator within, with uh, checks for leaks uh, in the bug builds. So when you run your tests, basically, uh, the allocator will fail the test if at the end of it you have like still memory allocated.
0: Okay, and that's default built in part of the test suite. You don't have to specifically instrument. Exactly. You don't have to do
1: anything. Oh, that's nice. That's
0: yeah. nice, actually.
1: Yeah. There's another um, angle to this also, which is that um, it is correct for programs to want to leak memory occasionally in this sense. Uh, I'll, I'll use the Z compiler itself as an example. So the Z compiler... Um, when built in the back mode, we'll make sure to free everything. When built in release mode, it will not free once it's about to leave. It will not free memory once it's about to leave, uh, to, to close, because the OS will clean up that memory anyway. And there's no point in freeing every single item that you've allocated if your program is about to exit. Like, M- making sure to free tiny things makes perfect sense when your program is going to use a ton of memory or it's going to be super long lived. Like, otherwise, it's going to consume more and more memory over time until it-, it eats all the available memory and everything explodes. Yeah. Um, but for, like, let's say one shot programs, kind of like a compiler is like you run the utility, it runs to the end, and then it closes. Um, cleaning stuff up at the end is just wasted time. So, um, have you ever used like Visual Studio? <laughs> not for so long. I yeah. can't believe. Yeah. Um, thankfully, I haven't had to use it in a while now. But a, a few years ago, like seven years ago or something, I had to use it consistently. And it drives me nuts that when you close it, not only it takes forever to load, that, that is already not okay. <laughs> but when you close it, it takes forever to close. Why? Why is it taking forever to close? Because as it's closing, it's trying to free e- and run the destructors of every single component and subcomponent and subsubcomponent.
0: I have a vague memory of doing this with Eclipse and just getting into the habit of force quitting because who cares? Right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and Eclipse is another and uh, Java. I think it's another language that has destructors and and so kind of makes people want to use them a lot. But then there's moments where you actually really, in terms of like functionality that you're offering to the user, you don't want to do it. Like you just want to close it right away. Yeah. Uh, So long story short, I I made this point because in reality, it is a legitimate behavior to have the program in specific circumstances leak memory, if you think about it. Because, yeah. like, for real, like, the user experience would be genuinely significantly improved in both Eclipse and Visual Studio if the thing just exited right away. Of course, you, you do want to have a toggle, like a flag, that makes sure you free all the memory cleanly so that you can uh, guarantee that you do not have unwanted leaks. Like, you, 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 Visual Studio, for example, is a long-running program in Eclipse. yeah, So they should not be leaking memory in the normal operations so it's not so you still want to be able to uh test for that
0: there are like two minutes there are at least two memory management strategies one is be very careful about what you're using because it's a limited resource yeah but for the long run you know whatever memory you're using at the end you can just drop on the floor right exactly yeah yeah that makes perfect sense there's one other big thing that you've talked about a little bit but um I'm tempted to run over our usual time slot because I'm fascinated by this. Go for
1: it. I, yeah. uh, I'm i not in a rush, for sure. Good. Okay, so comp
0: time, you talked a bit about that. And yeah. as an old LISP programmer, this is a concept that makes sense to me, but I think it's never really gone mainstream. Yeah. So why don't we talk a bit about the separation between runtime programs and compile time programs?
1: Sure. Um. So... Let me tell you about how Zig does this more specifically. Um, so time in Zig is interesting because um, Zig as a language doesn't have runtime type information. So for example, in JavaScript, Python, also in Go, you can ask questions to the program running at runtime about its types. Uh, C programs, on the other hand, don't have a runtime, and they don't have runtime type information. Usually it's not always the case, but usually runtime type information tends to go hand in hand with an actual runtime of the language. So for example, in Python, you can create new types at runtime. You can do introspection. And so having a runtime that can um, yield those dynamic properties to you. usually benefits from having runtime type information. Uh, C doesn't have those facilities because like a struct in C at the end of the day boils down to offsets in memory. Uh, Oh, this struct is, I don't know, uh, 16 bytes long and eight bytes in. uh, And like the first, uh, it contains two fields. The first field is at uh, offset zero and the other one is at offset eight. And and that's the end of it. So everything else has disappeared. But it is useful to be able to inspect types and reason about types, at least statically. So that's what Zig does. Zig does not give you runtime type information, but it does give you com-time type information. So you are not allowed, you're not able to create new types at runtime, but you are able to create new types at compile time by reasoning on other types. And the way you reason on other types... And then, by the way, this is also what generic does in other languages. It's just that this is usually done with... um, In other imperative languages, this is usually done with a funky declarative syntax and a bunch of diamond brackets where you use diamond brackets to denote, like, uh, the generic type and then to put constraints on it using, like, some kind of declarative syntax. Like, I want type T to be, uh, I don't know... um, uh, to conform to interface A or interface B, etc.
0: Okay, so you're using. you saying you're using comp time to do things like I want a list of A's, but now I need to pin it down to be a list of eight-bit integers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because you can. Because the idea is that you are creating a new type by in, by referring to another existing types, uh, another existing type, and the way you do this in Zig is not via this custom syntax, but by using ZIG's, normal Zig syntax. So, literally, uh, a list, for example, let's say you want to make a generic list and you want then to be able to make a list of integers, a list of characters, whatever. Mm. Uh, the way you you implement this in Zig is that you create a function called list that accepts a type as input, which has to be marked as a com time parameter. So, like the signature would literally read fn list, open parentheses, com time. T, column type. So it's a comp time parameter named T of type type. You have to pass in a type. And so right. that could be like integer or whatever. And then this function returns another type. And in the function body, you create a func- you create a struct, defini- you return a struct definition that places, that defines the payload field, like a struct probably, that has the payload field of type T, what you passed in which is kind of like generics work, uh, do, yeah. but it's normal procedural Zig code that gets executed at compile time. So for example, you could create like an, uh, uh, let's say you're making a simple array, but the length of that array, you want to be uh, the result of other reasoning. You could create a Fibonacci function, run it a comp time and, and say that your array is long the 10th Fibonacci number, which I don't know how much it is, but it's not going to be 10. It's going to be a bigger <laughs> number. Yeah. Right, so you can call normal run normal Z code. It's going to be interpreted by the compiler while compiling, and usually you do have some of that in other languages. It's just not fully general purpose. They give you restricted language to specify properties and have. They have their own special rules. Uh, in Z, it's just you run the Z code, and and the compiler has like a concept of a execution quota. So that, like for example, if you make a mistake and you try to make, um, you make an array that is the one thousand Fibonacci number, but your Fibonacci implementation is very bad. The compiler, after a while, is going to tell you, um, "I executed like ten thousand loops, and I, and since we couldn't come to a conclusion, I gave up." And if you really think this is this is, this is not like an infinite loop, then you can. Uh, pull up that number, like the number of uh, executions before giving up and and we 're going to try again but so that right. way basically we the, the, the compiler is how it deals with, like with infinite loops and undecidable stuff yeah so,
0: so you 're protecting against people making accidentally making compile time infinitely long. exactly yeah yeah yeah, and Alan Turing has opinions on why you can 't automate that
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah. and you know what in our case, i think it 's fine in practice to solve the indecisibility problem by just giving up because ultimately, like, you're trying to compile a program and you're not willing to sit there forever or arbitrarily long to have it compile. so...
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so this raises two natural questions. And the first has got to be, what's that like as a a programmer? Because most of us are used to using, like, diamond brackets for generics.
1: Do you prefer the Zig way? Does it feel natural once you get used to it? I think it feels insanely natural. Like you mentioned earlier, Lisp. To me, I, by the way, I also love Lisp. I've never used Lisp professionally, but like in university, definitely one of my favorite subjects. And um, and I also loved writing macros in Lisp. And it feels like writing macros in Lisp. Or actually, I would, I would say it's even better than writing macros in Lisp. Yeah, this, this, right. uh, ooh, the spicy opinion. <laughs> well, so uh, what I think happens with Lisp is that well, people say macros in Lisp are nice because Lisp is an homo iconic language. So the language itself is the data structure that represents it. It's the list. The yeah, it's the well, the the symbolic expression that represents it, uh, which is fair. But I do think that the the, the actual truth is that. By having the program be a data structure, you are naturally, uh, the language is steering you naturally towards treating the program as a data structure instead of it being a textual transformation. And in fact, you can write macros in list that don't generalize really well, that like make assumptions about um, a specific, like, argument being uh, being or not being a list or being or not being quoted, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, in ZIG, you are literally, uh, comp time is more limited than what you can do with list macros, just to be to be clear. And that's also kind of by design. It's kind of like of a 80-20 thing. Like it gives you 80% of the power but it saves you from the 20% of really cursed stuff that people will want to do all the time. <laughs> uh, or like, or rather, with 20% of the complexity, which does save you from cursed stuff. Yeah. Um, in Zig, what you do is like, the when you look at the type, you literally call a function, that, like you call at type info, and you pass in a struct. So let's say that you made a struct named person, and person has age and name. And then you call type info on person. And what you get back is a data structure that contains, like it's another struct that contains all the info about that type. Like among other things, it will contain like an array that contains the two fields with information about how the field is called, what's the type, et cetera, et cetera. And so your metaprogramming is Always going to look at the program as data and never as syntax. And I think that's the key that makes right. comp time weirdly, weirdly natural.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It does remind me. I mean, the frustration with Lisp macros was always that they were untyped and you could really cause things to explode yeah. in an even more spectacular way than normal Lisp. Absolutely. But the nice thing was that there was absolutely no difference between writing programs that worked at compile time. And runtime because it was the same tools, same language, same everything.
1: Exactly, and, and it's the same for uh, for Zig um, because you do use the same syntax. You, you like uh, I have an example on um, a blog post that I wrote uh, trying to introduce people to the concept of comp time. And my favorite example in there is uh, this idea that, uh, which is actually taken from real life experience. Uh, I was writing a Redis client for Zig, mm. and in Redis you have Commands like the query language of Redis uh, makes you write commands that are case insensitive. So if you write it uppercase or lowercase, it doesn't matter. So at some point in my client, I wanted to recognize some of those commands. So I wanted to check for equality between two strings. And um, my idea was well, to slightly, very slightly improve the performance of the comparison function, if I know that the constant string, like the string literal that I hardcode in my program that I used to check the user provided string against. If I know that that one is always going to be uppercase, I can simplify the comparison code ever so slightly. I can just remove one branch from the comparison. Hmm. Um, but now I have I want to enforce that when you call my equal function, you always pass in the first argument. Uh, the, the argument that you pass in Uh, like the first argument that you're passing is always going to be uppercase. Right,
0: so you want some compile time code to check those strings are correctly written. Exactly. Now,
1: imagine trying to do that with diamond brackets stuff. I have no idea (laughs) if you can actually even pull it off. Here's what you do in Zig. In Zig, in the function body you open a comp time block. Well, first of all, you have to mark the first argument as always being available at comp time. So people will be forced to give you, it doesn't have to be a string literal directly. It can be like a variable name, but ultimately the value containing that variable needs to be resolvable at comp time. It doesn't need to depend on weird stuff like the the network. Yeah. Um, So you open a comp time block and in there you have a for loop that loops over the string and checks that each character is in the correct range. That's it. That's all you do. Nothing weird. You just use the language to check the string character by character. And if you find a character that is not in your expected range, so in my case, it was uh, between uppercase A and uppercase Z, um, what you do is that you emit a compile error. And like you can emit a compile error that says, well you are supposed to give me a uppercase string and you didn't give me an uppercase string because this character is lowercase. Like, you can even be precise and print the string and point out a point at the specific character if you want. Like, you can craft the oh, nice. message whichever yeah. way you want. And that becomes the compile error. And so now users of, of your API, not only the constraint is enforced, so if they give you a, a bad string, they will get a compile error. But the compile error is also going to be... uh designed by you so people will get a nice compiler from the compiler that will tell them uh you're supposed to pass an uppercase string but you didn't
0: nice yeah so you can start doing bespoke compiler extensions exactly. and you don't have to learn a new language to do it no nope. that's pretty sweet okay okay that gives me a good sense of the of the footprint of the language so there's one of the big topic i think we should talk about um Which is, I thought it was really interesting the way that the Zig project is funded, right? Because every every language, particularly in every open source project, has a problem with getting enough work done because you've got to give up your day job if you really want a language to take off. Yeah, and your approach,
1: Zig's approach to funding, is fairly novel. Tell me about that. So, Zig is a five hundred one c three nonprofit foundation. Uh, U- U.S. non-profit foundation, like 501c3 is a thing in the uh, U.S. legal system. And it's been kind of set up like a charity. Yeah, it, it's t- ad- exactly what we normally would consider a charity. So it's tax exempt and uh, you cannot pay dividends. So all the money that goes into the organization has to be used to pursue your mission. So basically you have to use that money to run the company. You can take it out and buy a yacht with it or whatever Mention <laughs> <laughs> um, Zig is not the only language that has this uh, legal structure. Python, I think it's also another 501c3, but not all languages are net. Some other languages are a different type of, it's still considered a non-profit, but it's a different type of organization and which does have to pay taxes. Uh, th- this is a uh, what is usually it's one c 6 Like it, it might seem that there's not much of a difference between three and six, especially because it's place where we normally in like semantic versioning, we would have like the patch number. So you, you think, oh, c6, <laughs> c3, whatever. It's like uh, they fix the bug in there. No, that's there's a huge difference. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> We're not always consistent with version numbers, but my god, lawyers—they can really change oh, yeah. the rules between <laughs> versions.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, Zig specifically lives mainly off of donations. So most of our income comes from people uh, donating money to the foundation, so that we can move forward with with the development of Zig. Um. Some money also comes from other things. So it's and only, It's mainly donations from individuals. Uh, we do have also a good number of donations from companies, but I think in terms of like if, if we were to uh, do a pie chart and, and plot them both, they would, I think, roughly be balanced. So we, we, we do try actively to keep a balance between our sources of income. Uh, because we don't want to get in a situation where like one entity or like a very small number of individuals end up having control basically over the foundation. Mm-hmm. Maybe not directly, like, right? not legally, but if they control the money flow, then ultimately they do control the destiny of the organization. Exactly, and, yes. Yeah. yeah, and we do want to be able to say no to people. Um, we do have support contracts, um, or rather we have one uh, with Uber, because Uber is using Zig to... Uh, cross compile they are cross compiling i think uh as of today all their uh backend services that require cross compilation um because of arm servers mainly so like they okay. wanted a while ago to be able to have arm servers and not just intel well, x86 64 and yeah. so they use zig and and now they did the work to actually make sure that all their c++ stuff course compiles correctly. And yeah, so they have a support contract with us. But then again, it's not a huge chunk of our income. Uh, And that is mainly when it comes from from income. So um, related to this, also, we kind of want to be independent. And we're very serious about this. Like we used to joke that uh, like like the... uh, Because, you know, people sometimes say, oh, if you want to if you want this your language to succeed, like you cannot make a successful language unless you are supported by a big tech company. And we mm. kind of beg to differ, but also um, our standard uh, offer is how much money whatever big tech company wants to, do, to give us in exchange for 0% of the foundation and zero seats in the board of directors. <laughs> but they do get zigged in. The end. So they do get something in the end. Yeah,
0: yeah. There Just is a, some quid pro quo, but no power.
1: No power, no control yeah. at all. Zero, absolute zero. And uh, because we really want to make sure that we, like the, Zig is a BDFL-run project. So uh, also compared to other languages, we basically ultimately have Andrew, who is the creator who acts as like the, the ultimate uh, decision maker. It's not only him. There's a core team. There's people... There's a process which is also very public, like you can read proposals to change the language on the GitHub and discussion happens in public and actually anybody can chime in. But for example, it's not a democratic process. Like if a feature proposal has a huge number of upvotes, that counts zero towards the decision of whether to include that feature or not in Zinc. Right. Yeah. That usually that has some
0: downsides, but usually has great upsides for design consistency.
1: Absolutely. Found, yeah. And it's absolutely, in my opinion, fundamental if you want to have your language stay small, if you don't want it to eventually devolve into a kitchen sink. Yeah, um, that's true. And th- there was a talk by the creator of the Elm programming language recently that I think dove uh, into uh dove into this general concept, I think, in a very nice way. Basically, I'm paraphrasing and I'm gonna oversimplify. <laughs> uh the, the the talk is titled The Economics of Programming Languages, I think. It's from Strange Loop. And um well, it was given at Strange Loop. I highly recommend it. But the the bit that I'm interested about was uh said something along the lines of um Languages that are like five hundred one c sixes, like more corporate languages, that end up having like a bunch of organizations come together into a like kind of consortium or like a trade association. Um, they basically look at the language as a marketplace. They look at the shared infrastructure and all the commerce, all the commerce, all all the all the the business that this thing can support. So the. Which is reasonable, right? You look at a language like, I don't know, C-Sharp or Java, and those languages do enable a certain type of commerce. So from their perspective, they want the commerce to be as much as possible. They want to give the best market to their organization members. And so if an organization member wants something because it helps them do their business, you have a strong incentive of say to say yes. And whoever yeah, yeah. doesn't need that feature, they cannot use it. They can disable it. Uh, they don't have to use it, right? So there's no point in saying no to people if your goal is to enable the, have the biggest possible market. Um, but as technologists, we know that, that, well, there's some downsides from that, right? Once your language becomes a kitchen sink, then it's like, it's not good over time. So there's huge value in keeping your thing small and consistent. And I think that's what you get by choosing 501c3 over 501c6, or rather not going down the path of making your organization like a trades association.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, the thought that that one decision, how you're structured as a company or as, yeah. a, as a financial organization, will influence how you're designed as a language.
1: It, yeah. He has yeah. huge influence. Um people, programmers, don't want to think about this stuff. They like to think, oh, I just want to focus on the code. Uh, which is uh, it's a sentiment that I can understand. Frankly, I would like to only focus on the code. Uh but the hard lesson that I learned is that the To have the best technology, you have to get right the business side. Like the business side comes first. Every time you make a mistake there, the technology will suffer. It will.
0: In the long run, it really matters. In the short term, it doesn't. The long run, it has a huge effect. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Okay, well, I'm very glad we diverted into comp time, but we should probably wrap up and let the listeners go to (laughs) runtime. How's that for a yeah. segue? So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you um if someone wants to get started with Zig, I know you have LSP support, you have a VS Code plugin, you've got yeah. all the quality of life things for a new beginner, but where should they start learning?
1: Um my recommendation would be go to the official website ziglang.org, and there there's a learn section. The learn section has like a guide on how to download zig, install it. And it also links you to some learning resources. Personally, among those, the two, actually the three main ones that I would suggest is as a starting point, the language reference, uh, the documentation that tells you about the language, not the standard library. That one teaches you specifically about like syntax of the language. And it's one page, it's one long page. Like it's not an uh, A4 or US letter page, but it's like just one page It's not huge. And you don't have to read it all Precisely, you can scroll through it. Um, but that one gives you baseline understanding of ZIG. Right. Uh, then from there, I would suggest, if you don't have like experience with lower-level programming and you want like a very smooth learning curve, uh, ZIGLINGS is the best starting point, in my opinion. So ZIGLINGS is like a community project where basically you clone the repo and you get a collection of very tiny programs that don't compile or that don't behave correctly. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the comments tell you how to fix them. So you go one by one, and you the, the comment will Oh, this program is supposed to print hello word, but it doesn't. So fix it. And that's going to be super simple, right? You're going right. to just fix uh, the, the string literal, but then going forward, the exercises will become very smoothly, but they will, will become harder, and they will require you to understand more of the syntax. You know, I've, I think that's how I learned Clojure.
0: They had a similar thing called, I think, the Clojure Cohens. as mm-hmm. like a series of failing pro, small failing programs that you have to fix and you gradually learn the whole language. It's a lovely way to learn a new language.
1: Yeah, uh, Zigglings cool. is very, very, very popular. I would say it's probably the most popular uh, piece of educational content in the Zig ecosystem. Uh, and the name Zigglings is also inspired by Rustlings, because Rust also has it. Uh, Okay. The same thing, and they call
0: it rustling. Right. Nice. I will link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. uh, But for now, Loris, thank you very much for joining us. It's a fascinating um, fascinating language with
1: almost more scope than C, which I can't believe. (laughs) It has pretty much all the scope of C. It tries to fix all the things that C, for some reason, never wanted to fix. Like, think about it. Why is Zig able to cross-compile C and a C compiler is not going to be able to give you that out of the box? Like, we didn't get into this, but like you get a Zig, you get the Zig compiler and you write hello world in C and you can compile it from Linux to Windows. Try to do the same with Clang. It's not going to work.
0: <laughs> I'm not Which even going to try.
1: Yeah, but it's it, it's insane. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the scope is all of C, all of the things that C should have done that it didn't do, Well, that's a little bit extra.
0: Nice. That's enough to keep us busy for a while. Yeah. (laughs) Loris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Loris. Since we recorded that conversation, I have been playing around with the Zigglings tutorial he mentioned, and yeah, I can confirm it's a nice way to learn. I'm also planning to find time to pull out my old Arduino microcontrollers, because I've dabbled with kind of embedded hardware in the past. I've never really been happy writing C. I've loved using Rust, but it's been a fight to get things to compile onto the embedded hardware. So hopefully, Zig is going to finally make me happy when I'm tinkering with soldering irons and uh, wires and LEDs and stuff. In the meantime, I leave you with links to everything we've discussed. They're all in the show notes. There is a wealth of information out there about Zig, how to learn it, what it does, extra features we didn't get a chance to cover. And I'll leave you with a fun Easter egg. If you install Zig and type Zig Zen, it will tell you why it exists. I'll let you go and discover that. Before you go please do take the time to give us a like or a share or a rate or a review. It is the easiest way to let us know which topics you find most interesting so we can do more episodes on those kinds of topics. And if you haven't already, click subscribe or follow to catch future episodes. And until the next episode, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Loris Crow. Thanks for listening.